Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Raby. Today, we talk with Bernie Bastien Olvera, a postdoctoral scholar at the Scripps Institute for Oceanography at UC San Diego. Bernie and his co-authors have recently released a new paper in the journal Nature that explores how ecosystems benefit human society and how those benefits might change with our changing climate. It's a rich and fascinating piece of work, and in today's episode, I'll ask Bernie to help us understand it. We'll talk about the ways that using and not using ecosystems provide benefits to humans, how those benefits can be valued using economic tools, and how climate change is likely to affect those benefits in ways that disproportionately harm low-income parts of the world. We'll also talk about the many unanswered questions that remain on this crucial topic. Stay with us. All right. Bernie Bastian Oveda from University of California, San Diego. Welcome to Resources Radio from uh, sunny San Diego. I hear it's a nice day where you are today. Yeah, a very nice day. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure, uh, Bernie. And let's start the show with the same question we ask all of our guests, which is um, asking you to give us a sense of how you ended up working on environmental issues. And if you had an interest in this topic as a kid or you developed it later in life, what sort of drew you into this field? Yeah, I think uh, I started liking uh, to get more involved in these topics since I was a kid. I really like to go camping uh, near the mountains in Mexico City, where I am from. And um, there's something very special about camping in the mountains of Mexico City in summertime, which is there are a lot of thunderstorms that sometimes could be really, really intense. So as a kid, I always went camping there and then as a teenager. Uh, so I think that really connect me with the with the, with the nature of my of my city. But there was like this particular day that I remember, uh, this particular camping trip uh, when I was in high school, that uh, there was like this big, super intense thunderstorm, like big winds, a lot of rain, a lot of thunders, and many of our tents in this camping trip just boom, just blew out. Uh, they were just in the sky, kind of like, a, it was crazy because there were like these tents that were not like the new light tents. They were like the vintage style, like very thick materials, like large metallic poles, the ones that you need to carry like by three or four persons. And they were like, just, it just seemed like kites in the sky. So for me, it was like really surprising. And by that time I was between studying drama, theater or earth sciences. So I guess that settled up <laughs> my internal debate. And I was like, no, I really need to understand like our atmosphere, our like ecosystems, the forest, the mountains, how these energies working up like uh, right here above our heads. Wow. That's such a cool story. Uh, the tents flying in the air. I can totally picture it. Um, yeah, I grew up in North Carolina. We always had big thunderstorms in the summertime, um, but I was not a big camper. So I never had a tent flying away from me. That sounds like quite an experience. So. Um, Bernie, we're going to talk today about ecosystems um, and 
particularly the potential impact of climate change on ecosystems. Um, this is all stemming from a paper that you and several colleagues have recently published in the journal Nature called Unequal Climate Impacts on Global Values of Natural Capital. We'll have a link to the paper in the show notes, of course. Um, but let's start by just simply defining a couple of terms. Um, and, and the focus of our conversation is really about ecosystems today. So can you give us an introduction into this term ecosystem? We've all heard it a million times, but what does it actually mean? And how do ecosystems provide uh, benefits to society? Sure. Well, so in um, general terms, an ecosystem is just like an aggregate, a collection of animals, plants, bacteria, soils, and their physical environment surrounding them, uh, like the weather patterns, for example, that all share a similar geography or that all of them are in the same uh, landscape. So this is what an ecosystem is, and they are really behind everything that we value as humans. They sustain our lives, uh, giving us like uh, food, materials, uh, the proper conditions to do our daily lives. And they also are behind a lot of uh, our economies. Like uh, they, they are behind the conditions that make our economies uh, properly work. And they are uh, behind like the raw materials that are used in many industries. So they give us like a lot of benefits to people. And there are like so many benefits that uh, we wouldn't be able to understand this universe of nature's contributions to people if we didn't have like a framework. So one of the most uh, common frameworks to understand these benefits is the use and non-use values of nature. So we can think about like use values uh, as, as those benefits that we get from ecosystems anytime we interact with them, either directly, like for example, going to the forest to cut some wood, and uh, fuel a stove, for example, or indirectly, uh, just like as um, uh, all the all the materials that were used to form like many of the of our household items, for example. And the non-use values are all of those benefits that we get from nature, even without interacting with them. So here, as a personal example for me, uh, I really value, for example, the Oyamel Forest in Michoacan because it's sheltered to the monarch butterfly. Uh, which I just like to live in a world where butterflies have a home. And this is like, a, for me, it's important that this forest is there, uh, even if I don't get to visit it or, or to visit it or, or I don't have plans to visit it in the, in the future, right? So these are sort of like uh, the main two branches uh, of nature benefits in this framework. And of course, there are many others. Right. Yeah, that's a great description and, and great examples. And I think for listeners, it's intuitive that ecosystems provide, you know, enormous benefits, right? They sustain us in, in all sorts of important ways. Um, but one of the things that's uh, complex when we're doing research on these topics is that to really inform policymaking, we often have to quantify the benefits that ecosystems provide. And, and that can be really, really hard, especially for um, the benefits that aren't traded on an open market, right? So monarch butterflies aren't traded on an open market. It's, it's a complex um, methods are required to try to value the, the benefits that they provide either in a use or, or a non-use case. So can you talk a little bit through the data that you and your colleagues use to estimate, especially those non-market benefits of ecosystems in your paper? Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, uh, you're completely right. No, uh, When we don't have like a price or a, like a clear market signal to estimate these benefits, it, it becomes like really difficult to estimate them. 
But of course, the economic valuation literature has come up with many methodologies to estimate uh, these sort of benefits to people. Like uh, again, these two can be categorized like into into main areas. One is like the revealed preference methods, things that we can uh, find the footprint of, of how humans or societies are behaving and, and uh, regarding certain trade-offs that they can do directly or indirectly in the market that, that we can measure. For example, these are uh, like travel cost methods. No? How much uh, does it cost to go to a national park, for example, in terms of uh, entrance fees, but also like the time that we are spending uh, going there. And this can give us like an idea of what is, uh, how much uh, do we value these, these sort of benefits. But then there's also another uh, category of economic valuation, which are the stated preference methods. And these are mostly used uh, to estimate the non-use value benefits, no? which is asking uh, people what would be their willingness to pay to protect an additional amount of, for example, a uh, um, marine protected area or an additional hectare of a mangrove, for example. No? So all of these are methodologies employed in primary studies uh, where actually researchers uh, go to places or, or, or design a study that can um, elicit those values for people. But I didn't do any primary study. Rather, I, I actually used a global data set, which is uh, the Changing Wealth of Nations from the World Bank, which already has uh, global values at the country level. And the key thing of this data set is that these values of uh, different um, ecosystem benefits are already standardized uh, across the globe and standardized with different metrics that are useful for us in, in economics as the GDP. So um, the benefits that there are in this uh, database are uh, what we get from forests in terms of recreational services, for example, or the water resources or other forest products that we get, and also the value of protected areas. So just to answer uh, like uh, your your question and give an idea to the listeners, uh, for example, how this dataset values the benefits that we get from protected areas. Well, because it's really challenging to get these estimates, what they do is using a valuation method called opportunity cost, which is kind of uh, imagining that because we are protecting a natural area, we are letting go other profits that we are not sort of like realizing because we are not converting that protected area to, for example, an agricultural field. So this is a way in which the World Bank in this case measures uh, the value of protected areas. And of course, they are letting out a lot of other values that protected areas give to people. But they are saying like, at least it values uh, the foregone profits that we are not realizing by converting this area to an agricultural field. So that's a data set that I used. So the main innovation that we did here in this study, it was to combine this data set uh, of like global values of natural capital with other sort of uh, output from the ecology literature, which is output from dynamic global vegetation models, which they can, which they are computational models across the world that tell us how uh, the vegetation will move. What we did is that we were able to map the values that we get from nature to the different um, plant groups that we can model uh, from the present through the end of the century. That's great. And um, and right, of course, you're using climate models to to estimate the changes in the climate, which translates into changes in you know 
land cover, I, I suppose, and then changes in the uh, value in terms of market benefits and non-market benefits of those ecosystems. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's that's exactly what we did. Okay, great. So um, we're going to dig into detail in just a minute, but first let's just sort of start with the headlines. So can you give us some of the top headlines that you and your colleagues pull out uh, from this paper on how you estimate climate change uh, potentially affecting natural capital uh, over the course of the century? Yeah, so what we were able to do is like to pin down a number, um, like an estimate of this mechanism in terms of market and non-market values. So in terms of the non-market values, we estimated that uh, for a moderate emissions scenario, like uh, above, just above two degrees Celsius by the end of the century, uh, we estimated uh, an average global loss of 10% of non-market ecosystem services uh, globally. And uh, which is quite a lot, but also for the market values, all the, all the ways in which we use ecosystems to fuel our economy, those are not as large as 10%. They, they have one characteristic, which is that they will unequally affect lower income countries. Yeah. And that's a you know one of the main points that emphasized throughout the paper that you know some of the largest impacts occur in, in some of the poorest parts of the world. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know why is it that these particular parts of the world are particularly vulnerable in the analysis that you carry out? Yeah, well, there are a mainly sort of like two uh, mechanisms here or two, two two factors that drive these inequality intensifying mechanism that is the biome biome shifting throughout the world. Uh, well, first, that overall ecosystems are moving towards the poles from the equator towards the poles on average by the end of the century. This is a slow movement, but that is happening. So in a way, this uh, matches the places where most of these lower income countries from the global south are located. Most of them are within the tropical regions. So they are located in places where the ecosystems will migrate out of their um, country boundaries, or they will just also um, lower in terms of area cover in their, in their countries. Um, so one thing is that, that the movement is towards the poles and that mainly lower income countries are in the tropics. And the other one is, um, how much do these economies rely on ecosystems themselves? So we have varying degrees in which uh, country-level economies uh, rely in their local ecosystems and varying degrees in which um, they use their, their ecosystems as raw materials to fuel their economy, uh, so to speak. So what we see is that this factor of ecosystems is very important for lower income countries. They really depend a lot on what they can get from their local uh, forests and ecosystems to, to fuel their market economy, which is not the case for uh, richer economies, which mostly rely on other uh, non-tangible aspects of the economy or uh, by importing goods and services coming from other ecosystems in the world. Yeah. That's that's so interesting. Can you maybe give us an example or two of a of a country or a hypothetical country that's you know somewhere near the equator that relies on ecosystems for a substantial you know share of its economy and and like again maybe just give us a feel or, or an example for how climate change affects that particular economy and, and its ability to grow economically. Yeah, so we can think about like an hypothetical country that uh, 
is uh, near the global south. Think about like a country in Latin America, for example, uh, which its economy is not uh, as as well developed as as other like richer countries, and rely a lot on, for example, uh, the wood materials to both like fuel their industries, but also uh, to sort of like a as as a primary product for for persons and for local societies to to flourish, right? So that's another good thing about uh, using this global database of the World Bank because they have estimated these shares of the economy for each particular country that depends directly on these on these ecosystems. So basically, we can imagine that just like the raw materials enter the industry and entering uh, households. To, to allow uh, the market economic activity. But also there's another factor that we put into play here, which is also kind of like the, the innovation in, in, in what is called like the production function, no? what maps uh, the economic activity to, to the different factors of, of production, which is sort of like the, the conditions in which we are um, sheltered as the different uh, country level economies that allow us for 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 our economies to flourish. So these conditions are just like, a, for example, having a, a variable climate in which workers can go to uh, to factories, to the agricultural fields, and to do their their job in the in the most efficient way. So we are uh, using as input these two type of 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 natural capital. One is in the form of raw materials, and the other one is as enabler of uh, market production. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And to get a flavor for some of these land cover changes and how they vary across space, there are some really amazing figures in the paper. I'm thinking about figure two in particular. Uh, people can can check it out, and I feel like I could look at that figure for several hours and still not have captured all the riches in it. So a- another question that came to my mind you know, reading through this analysis is, how big some of these impacts were compared to other ways that we measure climate damages that researchers have come up with. You know, we, we've done shows in the past about the social cost of carbon. We've talked about the potential impacts of climate change on human health and agricultural production and other sort of parts of our society. So these damages that you estimate in this paper, how do they stack up relative to some of the other climate damages that are assessed in the research? Yeah, that's also a great question because, uh, for example, some recent studies uh, have assessed or estimated like the effect of climate change in the market uh, uh, economy or like as a percent of GDP. They have estimated that future climate change can reduce up to 10% of GDP by the end of the century. And our estimate is that biome shifts would cause on average a 1% reduction of GDP. So we can see that only by accounting for this mechanism, uh, basically one-tenth of the estimated impacts on GDP are due to biome shifts. And this is uh, pretty large considering that we are not uh, taking into account, for example, other like larger phenomena in the ecosystems, like for example, wildfires or biodiversity loss and how that could affect the market economy. But on the other hand, for the non-market benefits, uh, well, those are uh, higher. Those are expected to be reduced by 10% by the end of the century, which is quite a lot. And just to uh, give you an example, um, comparing to mortality effects 
of climate change under the same warming scenario as the one that we are using. Uh, the average mortality rate increase is expected to, to be 2%. So, for example, uh, so, so yeah, what I want to say is like 2% for mortality and 10% for non-market benefits. Well, that's that's a, that's quite a lot, uh, kind of like in the same order of magnitude. Uh, and still, uh, we're expected to uh, to lose a lot because of, of biome range shifts uh, in terms of their non-market benefits that give us to society. Now, there's like another aspect in which uh, you mentioned like how these could, for example, translate to the social cost of carbon, no? like this, this metric of, of measuring climate impacts in the society. Well, when we translate this 10% reduction of non-market uh, benefits in terms of their monetary values, it is really, really small, especially compared with other metrics like mortality, which is quite a lot. And this is due to first the evaluation methods that that are used for the different benefits or the different like uh, welfare components of society, which for mortality is used like the value of a statistical life, which is quite high. And for these non-market benefits, as, as the example that I told you, some of them are quite low. For example, for protected areas, uh, we are just uh, estimating or using the value that we would have got if we had converted that protected area to an agricultural field, right? So this 10% reduction translates into small damages, first because of the methods that we are using, and second because of the benefits that we are measuring. We are only uh, measuring for benefits, which is the ones that I mentioned, no? Water resources, forest resources, natural protected areas, and recreational services. Four out of the many, many diverse uh, benefits that we get from nature. So um, I would say in terms of percentage, it's a lot and comparable to other components of climate impacts in society. But in terms of monetary values, uh, it's, uh, it's quite small yet. Right. That's so interesting. And, and that distinction of like how much does the service itself change versus how much does the valuation of that service change is such an interesting sort of economic question. And um, and I love that you pointed out that we are certainly not capturing all of the values here. That's really important to keep in mind. So another question um, that I was wondering um, and hoping you could speak to is in the simulations that you and your colleagues run, I was wondering if there are any patterns regarding whether market or non-market benefits were affected more heavily, or if they were affected roughly the same. And you know, and if you could help us understand why that might be, are there is there something about the market benefits of uh, ecosystems that might be more or less heavily affected under climate change scenarios than the non-market benefits that we as society enjoy? Uh, well, yeah, that's a that's an excellent question because yeah, certainly we can see in the output that uh, market benefits are affected less than the than the non-market benefits. So I would say that it all comes down to um, not not like the vegetation patterns, but rather how this vegetation is used as an input in the welfare components of society, either as an input. Uh, of like a, as a factor of production in the in the market economy, or just as a, an asset that gives us a flow of of benefits. So there's something really interesting um, regarding the vegetation patterns and how they change. Which is for the uh, lower income economies, or for mostly for countries that are in tropical regions, 
something uh, interesting happens, which is grasslands are mainly substituted by forests. So one would uh, think that that's, I don't know, in, in general, we see forest, like in the, in the, in, in, in our imagination, uh, is like a forests are more diverse or more productive. You know, we share an imaginary around forests that are, that are like a, that are better in some ways than just having a grassland, right? And this is something translated uh, also into the ways that we categorize uh, plant functional types, which are which is like this categorization that is used in these in these models that uh, that project um, future pathways of of vegetation throughout the world. So something interesting is that even though tropical forests are replacing up to a certain point grasslands in the tropics. Uh, we still don't see like an increase that that people is valuing more forests than grasslands, and that has to do with our historical view of what is valuable. Our historical view of, for example, that mostly uh, people from the global north are the ones that have mostly categorized uh, this type of of forest, for example, or this type of grasslands. And there's been like some studies, for example, in in human geography, in which they go back to some uh, communities that are. Uh, surrounded by what is categorized as grassland, and they ask them like, "Is this what is this category for you? Like, how how would you categorize this?" And uh, and and they come up with like a a, a very like a sort of uh, skewed uh, vision of what of what are the the values for the for the people. No, uh, most of the times like the values that that this local ecosystem gives to people are way more than what is like uh, usually thought as as grasslands so i would say that's something that we need to work on a little bit more to represent uh the diverse and rich type of ecosystems that we have throughout the world now through different visions that's so interesting um so these studies that you're talking about in human geography are these essentially stated preference surveys where uh, researchers are going to communities and asking people about how they value their ecosystems or, or is it some other approach? Well, no, this is this is like a one step before doing that. This is just simply uh, going to, to these places and, and asking, what is this ecosystem? We have that this ecosystem in our global data set is categorized as grassland with such and such characteristic. Does that sound right to you? And and uh, what it's been shown is that uh, is that most of the times is is miscategorized or like there are like uh, many categories that are not taken into account. And then if we put like a value of, for example, net primary productivity uh, or like an even even the ecological values, like the physical characteristics, biophysical characteristics of that ecosystems are misrepresented. So I would say what you point out, uh, it's sort of like what what we would have to to do next, no? How can we represent in these global models and in these global uh, valuation methods of the of the natural capital throughout the world different sort of frameworks of both uh, ecological uh, characteristics and the values that those ecosystems gives uh, give to people? 
That is so interesting. And um, and it actually feeds in really nicely to the last question I wanted to ask you before our top of the stack segment, which is uh, about limitations. And with any study, there are limitations. And you already mentioned a couple um, with the analysis that you've done here. But I'm wondering if you can just expand more on any other sort of really central limitations that you see in your analysis and also in the literature more broadly. And then maybe whether you're actually working on some of those topics now. I'm not sure what you're working on these days, but I uh, assume it. Um, has some connection with the work that you've already done and maybe to trying to overcome some of those limitations. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah, there are many, many limitations in, in, in this study because it touches like so many different angles from many different disciplines that that I would say that this is the part of the paper that is like the, the richest part, like the discussion and the discussion of the limitations because it really sort of like uh, paints some directions in which like... Uh, where we need to do more research. So some of them are the ones that I mentioned regarding, for example, we're not taking into account like a large ecosystem uh, changes or phenomena like wildfires, for example. Uh, there are some ecosystem models that project also uh, ecosystem changes by the end of the century, turning on the wildfires module of the model. So that would be really interesting, like a follow-up study to do, like what what is the like the marginal impact on on these market and non-market benefits if we turn on the wildfires uh model of these computational models another thing is like the diverse uh frameworks to understand nature benefits that's also something that has been uh, a lot of research on that in which uh there's there's new research that comes up with frameworks that are created by decision makers, by indigenous communities, by economists and by ecologists, in which uh, what we're trying to come up uh, with a framework that we can um, expand diverse visions of nature. And then lastly, well, we're not taking into account um, another set of ecosystems that are quite important for us as humans, which are all the marine ecosystems. Um, we are working with uh, dynamic global vegetation models uh, like terrestrial models, but we are just like uh, missing all the things that are happening in the ocean and how all those things enable both our market economies and also uh, our welfare as a society. And well, that really connects with what I'm uh, currently doing as a postdoctoral fellow in the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which is basically come up with a new, with a social cost of carbon of, or come up with uh, what are the climate impacts in society through uh, through the oceans. So yeah, I'm really excited to 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 at some point like say something about that that would be kind of like a similar to this study. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And of course, with oceans, we've got not just temperature change, but acidification and uh, species loss um, and um, so many other dynamics. That sounds really complex and fascinating. Um, so I'll look forward to inviting you back on the show when you've got some interesting results from that analysis. Um, well, uh, Bernie, Bastian, Olvera, this has been a really great conversation. I've learned a ton and there's so much more to unpack from this analysis. I hope listeners will check it out. Um, but let's ask you the last question we ask all of our guests before we wrap up today, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is really great and that you think our listeners would enjoy. So, so what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Oh yeah, that's a uh, that's a great question. Well, this is a movie recommendation which I just saw recently. Although it's not like a 
very recent, it's from 2018. It's called The Biggest Little Farm. And because we have been talking about ecosystems, this is about like a couple that uh, just like dropped their jobs uh, at age 40. They were working in uh, Los Angeles and they just dropped their jobs to buy like a piece of land uh, near uh, near Los Angeles and they started a farm, but they, but they wanted like to, to create sort of like a, a, a working ecosystem within that little farm. So they kind of like avoid uh, pesticides or any sort of like a plague control or like a sort of like technological resources, but they solve like every problem throughout seven years in which is like the span of this documentary, um, only using the connections of an ecosystem to make a farm productive and to make a farm work. So this is like a really great, uh, movie to to understand ecosystems our connection with them uh in the in market terms and also in non-market terms and yeah all the all the values that a small ecosystem can give to a family and to the people so really recommend it this is directed by john chester 2018. great the biggest little farm uh that sounds really fantastic um and dovetails perfectly, of course, with our conversation today. So, um, Bernie Bastian Olvera, one more time uh, from University of California, San Diego. Thank you so much for coming on to Resources Radio and sharing this fascinating work with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.